Hello, Pete here. Before we begin, we'd like to try something new. We often talk about the pictures we're going to post on our social media, but sometimes it's easy to miss things when they're posted online. So, if you'd like to receive an email with the pictures and all the other stuff we send out all in one place, sent directly to your inbox, all you have to do is send us an email with the subject line newsletter to Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We'll do the rest. Anyway, on with the show. History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Google Maps to my where the heck is Kamchatka? It's Mr. Ryan Weir. It's a solid question, one I've been puzzling (laughs) over. (laughs) But have I got the answer? Well, last week, let us explain that Dursleter gave us faith in Kamchatka during 1450 to 1750, which is the early modern era. So what have the listeners got in store? Ryan, in your research, have you rewarded my faith in you? Will I be able to believe the amount of fascinating facts you bring to the episode? And, as I may have already asked... Where the heck is Kamchatka? (laughs) Well, Pete, you raise a very solid question and one that has puzzled me for a while. But look, we are going to be taking a spiritual sojourn to the wondrous world of fish, bears and volcanoes. We're going to meet the people who worshipped a giant mechanical raven and hear the unorthodox measures that one man took to bring faith to the region. We're going to voyage into the backcountry with the king of Kamchatka and shrivel in terror at the zealous lengths some believers went to to become one with the divine. Join me on an expedition to the edge of imagination, where faith and nature collide in spectacular fashion. Welcome to the land of fire and ice. Welcome to the Bear Kingdom. Welcome to the Kamchatka Peninsula. giant mechanical raven ryan i must admit i'm already intrigued and excited but why don't you get us associated as to where we are in the world because that was obviously the question that's on everyone's lips okay so it is one part of a larger area known as kamchatka Krai, which is part of the russian federation so it's a bit like new york city which is in new york state which is part of the united states right so to find kamchatka if you're looking at a map find russia Got it. Big lad, top right. <laughs> exactly. Now you're going to want to head to its most eastern edge. That's the side that faces Alaska. And you're going to recognise the Kamchatka Peninsula because it's the only bit of land there that droops down from the mainland and is almost entirely surrounded by ocean. Well, three seas, actually. The Sea of Okhotsk, the Bering Sea and the Northwest Pacific Ocean. But what is it like there, I hear you ask? I would hazard a guess, cold and wet. Yes, well, imagine the remotest corner of Earth. (laughs) Tucked (laughs) away in the forgotten edge of Russia. Nine time zones away from Moscow. A place rich with smoky volcanoes, ancient glaciers and craters, fast mountain rivers and impressive waterfalls. You've got mountain pine and stone birch forests, alpine meadows full of bright colourful flowers, fields of ash and hot healing springs that burst from the ground in broiling geysers. 
That's the Kamchatka Peninsula, the land that time forgot. And I forgot, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of size, you can probably want to know, how big is this place? At a wild guess, I suspect it's big because it's part of that gigantic russian space, which is occupy most of the map. Yes, well, remember it is part of Kamchatka Krai, right, which is the larger region. And uh, that region has a total area of 472,000 square kilometres. That's 182,000 square miles, which is about twice the size of France. But we're just looking at the peninsula, the droopy down bit into the ocean. And that bit covers an area of approximately 270,000 square kilometres or 104,000 square miles, which is just over one Kamchatka peninsula to a France. That is still a fairly chunky bit of territory. It is long and mountainous. It has an extreme sub-Arctic climate, meaning that it's generally cool and wet with summers that average around 59 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 degrees Celsius, and winters that hit as low as minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Minus 50 degrees Celsius. Pack a scarf. (laughs) And some gloves. (laughs) Go all the way. Mittens even. (laughs) (laughs) So about 322,000 people live there, which is roughly one person for every 22 football fields of land. So local soccer game is long drawn out affair. Long drawn out (laughs) affair, yeah. Uh, But of course, people don't spread out like that. Roughly half of all the population, around 180,000 people, live in Petropavlovsk Kamchotsky. Yes, yes, I know it well. (laughs) Yes, it's the largest city and the regional capital. Uh, The official language is Russian, the religion is Orthodox Christian, and the national symbol is three snow-capped volcanoes, an emblem which features on the regional flag, which has a white background with a horizontal band of blue across the bottom. There is no official anthem specific to the peninsula itself, but the anthem for the larger territory of Kamchatka Krai, which includes the peninsula, is Anthem of Kamchatka Krai. And it sounds a little something like this. Oh, this is one of those gentle ones. It is. It's emotive, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. It's stirring without marching. <laughs> so this became the anthem on the 1st of July 2010, after a competition by the Heraldic Commission to find a song that reflects the area's spiritual, political, economic, cultural and national heritage. I was definitely getting economic, cultural and national heritage. <laughs> So this is composed by Eugeni Morozov, and uh, he won a prize of 70,000 rubles for winning the competition for the anthem, which is uh, roughly about $1,000 or £560. I feel I want a bit more than that for creating the national anthem for my country, but okay, I guess national pride is a thing. Oh, finishes like a movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't that great? That was good. I enjoyed that. Come check the facts. <laughs> All right. I've got some meaty facts for you, Pete. All right, great. So, Kamchatka is full of wildlife, as you might imagine. Uh, It's home to a quarter of all the world's salmon. Wow. Yeah, 40 million salmon return there every summer to spawn, uh, which might explain why it also has one of the highest densities of brown bears anywhere on the planet. (laughs) They love a salmon, don't they? Yeah, the peninsula has an estimated 20,000 brown bears just sort of roaming around. That's one bear for every 10 people. If I were to live in 
in a region with bears, I'd like it to be a region where the bears have plenty to eat already. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, they are a familiar sight to see. Uh, however, illegal poaching of salmon has led to bears going hungry, and this has led to an increase in interactions between bears and humans. See, that was exactly the thing I wanted to avoid. <laughs> yeah, well, check this out. In 2008, a group of 30 bears attacked and ate two security guards working at a mining company and then surrounded the building they were securing, trapping 400 geologists and miners inside until hunters had to be called out to, uh, you know, shoot them all. 30 bears. That's a herd of bears. Bears don't travel in herds. That's really unsettling. (laughs) It's pretty spooky, isn't it? Uh, Other animals include wolves, reindeer, sea eagles and puffins. Offshore, you can find orcas, seals, sea otters, giant octopus and the Kamchatka crab, a huge crustacean. weighs up to 25 pounds and it has a leg span which can reach up to 12 feet, twice as long as me. Good Lord, that's (laughs) enormous. Yeah, it has claws at the end of its feet which can crush with a pressure of up to 3,000 newtons, which basically, I I did the math, and if uh, humans had the same strength in our hands, we could crush a brick to dust. Wow, that sounds amazing. Are they? I bet that we're in fact eating them out, though, are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is is that uh, they mostly feed on smaller crabs and fish, but apparently they have been known to grab and eat the occasional seal. <sighs> Poor old seal. It's horrifying. That is, I believe there has been a novel about giant predatory crabs, and that sounds like the real thing. It's pretty gross, isn't it? Kamchatka is one of the most seismically active places in the world. It experiences hundreds of minor earthquakes each year, has over 300 volcanoes, 29 of which are active, more than any other place on Earth. The largest is nearly 5,000 metres tall. It's been erupting for over 7,000 years, the latest being in 2020. In fact, so many eruptions occurred in Kamchatka during the 1970s and 80s that Soviet cosmonauts used the landscape as a training ground for future moon landings. Wow, that's (laughs) a testimony to how bleak your landscape is, isn't it? Yeah. And finally, Pete, Kamchatka is home to the world's only moss knitting club. Only one, you say? I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) This hasn't caught on more. (laughs) Yeah. So a whole bunch of local babushkas, they gather weekly to knit sweaters, scarves and hats made out of Kamchatka green moss, which is harvested on fields of volcanic ash. But I don't... I've never looked at moss and thought that would make a lovely jumper. Well, maybe you should, because apparently the fibre has a hollow structure to it that makes it twice as warm as wool. Oh. Not only that, though, Pete, it's absorbent, it's light, and it's considered to have antiseptic qualities. Oh, and did you buy me an HHE moss jumper? (laughs) No, but we're going to be selling them on a merch store. (laughs) I mean, it all makes sense as long as you're happy with green as your colour of clothing. (laughs) (laughs) If it worked for Robin Hood, it works for me. Amazing. There you go. (laughs) Pete, do you want to do some vodka to celebrate Kamchatka? I certainly do. All right, let's do it. I'll pass one over. Here you go. Nostrovia. Cheers. Clink. Clink. Ah! (laughs) I mean, that's nice. (laughs) Feel it on its journey. (laughs) Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Are you going to the store today? Actually, yeah, I was just heading out. Do you need something? Yes, I do. I wrote down a list. If you can get me everything on that, that'd be great. 
Right, let's see what you want this time. Salmon, giant crab, green moss, seaweed, bear hide, drum, bag of ash. Ryan, what is this nonsense? It's all the things I need for my new diet. And tell me, what kind of diet requires geothermal hot spring water and potatoes grown in volcanic soil? It's called the Kamchatka diet. The Kamchatka diet? Yep, it's the latest craze. I see. I just thought I could lose a little weight, you know, and this is the best diet out there. Is it though? Yeah. Okay, fine, but where do you expect me to get herbs that bloom under the aurora borealis? Supermarket. Uh, You think a supermarket in the UK is going to stock brown bear butter, whatever that is? Yeah, in the exotic food section. Ryan, the international food section won't have food from Kamchatka. It might. But it doesn't. And even if they did, it won't matter because all these fad diets are useless if you're not going to do any actual exercise. Oh, I'm doing plenty of exercise. Really? Yeah, I'm doing Kamchatka size. Kamchatka size? Yeah, basically, all I have to do is spend the day clambering around over everything in the house without ever touching the floor. What, like the floor is lava? Exactly, just like in Kamchatka. Well, in that case, why don't you clamber your way to the shops to buy your own bear butter, and while you're there, pick up a pizza for me. Right, I'll have a bear butter, and you just have a boring old pizza with pepperoni and mushroom and um, maybe a little bit of onion and... Oh, some chilies. You want a pizza now, don't you? I do. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, well, I now know where I am. I'm wearing a lovely fetching moss jumper, but I need to know more about the place. What happened in the past? You want to know the history? I do. All right, well... Around 26,000 years ago, ice sheets over much of the Northern Hemisphere started to recede as the temperature warmed up. Now, this revealed new land underneath. Now, over on the Asian mainland, early man was there, and he sort of saw this new development opportunity opening up (laughs) and quickly decided to migrate there. Early investor. Caught my real estate agent. (laughs) And so, 14,000 years ago, we find tribes of early peoples living on riverbanks, building huts, making sweet-ass tools, using them for hunting and farming, all that good stuff. Over time, these people connect with other tribes around the area and they start to trade furs. And that's kind of it for a long time. (laughs) Life on the peninsula just kind of (laughs) hits its groove doing that. Not much else really happens until during our time period in the 17th century, the Russian Empire arrives. Oh. Yeah. Guess what? (laughs) Everyone is informed that they are now Russian. Hey, good news. Here's your flag. Please start waving. Yeah, so inevitably, conflicts break out, which do not go well for the indigenous people. And by the 19th century, what's left of the native population are kind of rolled up now within the Russian Empire. They're paying taxes, they're drinking vodka, they're eating borscht, they're squatting down in Adidas tracksuits while playing the balalaika. Classic stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Now, as we head into the 20th century, international scientists and explorers hear about the natural wonders of the Kamchatka Peninsula. And so they head on over there to study the various fauna, flora and geological formations that have them all G'd up. Now, unfortunately, along with their microscopes, Bunsen burners and flower presses, this international gang of science bros also bring with them some tasty new diseases. And this causes the population of indigenous people to collapse from what was once around 50,000 people to just under 5,000 people. That's not many people. No, it is not many people. In the 1950s, as the Cold War heats up, the Soviet Union decides to turn Kamchatka into a military zone so they can better point missiles at America, I guess. So they close borders, they build military bases, and they restrict access for everyone, including Soviet citizens. 
I suppose that is very much America's back door, isn't it? That's the, uh, the sneaky way in. Yes, so 40 years later in 1991, the Soviet Union collapses and Kamchatka is reopened to the public. Good news, right? Or so you'd think. Because unfortunately, during the past several decades, the local economy has relied entirely on military money. And with that now being disbanded, there is an inevitable and crushing economic downturn, which causes widespread poverty. Yeah, I can imagine if your main skill is tank engineer, then the military leave, you're really going to struggle to find another job, aren't you? It is a problem. Missile polisher. (laughs) It's not coming up on LinkedIn, is it? No. (laughs) Now, new financial opportunities appear, though, with the rise of eco and adventure tourism, bringing international visitors back to the peninsula, along with some well-needed cash and COVID-19. Yeah, well, that was a mixed mixed bag of events, wasn't it? <laughs> a roller coaster ride there. <laughs> well, more recently, other financial opportunities have emerged too. Several of Russia's largest oil and gas companies have shown an active interest in the region, as you might imagine. <laughs> oh Lord, uh, yes, that, that always ends well. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, much to the concern of environmentalists and the remaining indigenous peoples. But so far, the peninsula remains undrilled. This isn't due to any laws or restrictions preventing them from do that, though. This is just largely because it's difficult to drill in such a remote location. It's not cost efficient and it's not easy to access or build the infrastructure needed. But it is worth bearing in mind, though, that as technologies are developing and demand grows for new sources of oil and gas, we we might yet see drilling in Kamchatka during our lifetimes. So fingers crossed that does not happen. Yes, if we've learned anything in the various places we visited, it's pristine natural environment and large oil corporation, rarely a successful combo. Yes, using a toothbrush to get oil off a duck's back. It's like oil off a duck's back. <laughs> which is hard which is hard <laughs> anyway i guess that is where we find the kamchatka peninsula today it is a region which still struggles with its economy it's reliant on conservation and tourism it is an incredible place of insane natural beauty personally i hope it stays that way for a long time to come and armed with several cans of bear spray i'd like to visit one day and see it myself is that to freshen up your bears? It's like a deodorant. <laughs> I attract all the bears. <laughs> well, thank you, Ryan. That was good stuff. Now I know where I am, when I am, and what went on. Horrorshaw. Sergey, did you hear that? Hear what? That rumbling sound. Ah, it's probably just the wind whistling through the missile silo. No, 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 no. Listen. It sounds like growling. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's getting louder, too. I think something's outside. Wait, is it a bear? I bet it's trying to get in. What do we do? Stay calm. I'll handle this. Careful, Sergei. Bears are unpredictable. Oh, look at the size of this boy. He's as big as a tank. Don't get too close, Sergei. Use your rifle. Shh. Easy there, big fella. No need to get riled up. Shoot it, Sergei. Quickly, before it attacks. No, no, I've got a much better idea. We'll recruit him. A guard bear for the silo. Have you lost your mind? Nothing will tear us apart. Comrade Bear, welcome to the Soviet military. Join us and help defend the motherland. It's out for blood, Sergei. Shoot it. He just needs a little training, don't you, boy? I'm going to call him Boris. This is insane. That bear is a killing machine. Ideal soldier. Boris, sit. Good boy. Go on, let's get you a furry hat. We need to kill this thing, Sergei, before it tears us apart. Uh-oh, I think Boris has sat on the launch button. You idiot. The bear has started World War III. And this is why... 
the Soviet Union passed a constitution that precluded the right to arm bears. Ryan, we're here to talk about faith, but what does that mean? I want to know. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Faith is best described as a belief or a trust in something without having any definitive proof, right? There is no reliable evidence that aliens exist, but I have faith that they're out there somewhere. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) There's faith in ideals, so like believing in the inherent goodness of people. There's faith in principles like karma, you know, where you believe that good deeds result in positive returns and negative actions will come back and haunt you. There's faith in other people where you might trust a friend to keep a dark and dangerous secret. Isn't that right, Pete? I don't know anything that you're talking about. Thank you very much. (sighs) (laughs) There's faith based on science and past experiences. So, you know, trusting that the sun will come up tomorrow or that an asteroid will not hit the Earth tomorrow. But it's perhaps most usually associated with religious faith. This is people who have deep belief in a higher power. They follow religious teachings and participate in spiritual rituals because they believe that there's something else out there greater than us, despite having any evidence necessarily to prove it. Yes, that was where my mind first went to was religious faith. But I I actually you've opened my mind there to think actually you do have faith in a lot of things that aren't necessarily spiritual or spooky or religious. You're exactly right. Faith then, as a concept, concept is inherent to everybody. We all experience some element of faith in our lives, but that doesn't mean that it's universally accepted as a good thing. Some see faith as a sign of inner strength. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Others see it, though, as the enemy of rational thought and would prefer that we place greater emphasis on living a life based on evidence and reasoning. (coughs) Judge Dursley. (laughs) Yes, that's going to be an interesting conversation because, of course, you can't have everything proved all the time. Every time I cross a bridge, I don't ask to see the blueprints and check the engineering. I have faith that it's going to support me. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a really good example. Yeah, so there's people like Sigmund Freud who said of religious faith, the whole thing is so patently infantile, so foreign to reality, that to anyone with a friendly attitude to humanity, it is painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never be able to rise above this view of life. Yes. Whereas others choose to sit out the debate entirely. People like Albert Einstein, who said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. All these aspirations are directed toward ennobling man's life, lifting it from the sphere of mere physical existence and leading the individual towards freedom. Yeah, he was very erudite, wasn't he? If you asked me, I'd have said something like, I don't know, it's like God and stuff in it. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I'd asked you now. (laughs) So, look, regardless of where you personally fall on the subject of faith, it does remain one of life's great mysteries that continues to sort of unite and, unfortunately, divide humanity. Now, in terms of this episode, despite there being no evidence that we're going to have a good show, I'd like you to all hold faith that I've got some good stories lined up. 
But before I begin, I just want a quick word on the time period. 300 years between 1450 and 1750. This is a period of immense changes across the planet, with the Renaissance, the Age of Discovery, the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution all working together to lead people out of their medieval ways of life and pave the way for the rise of colonial powers all starting to dominate the globe. But we are going to start our journey in the earlier years of our period, a time when Kamchatka was called Kamchatu, and gods and spirits played an active role in the lives of the people who lived there. And we're going to hear more about that, Pete, after this. Sketch! Oi! What? I hate your faith. What do you say about my faith? You have an ugly faith! Well, I won't have my beliefs insulted like that. I'm leaving. Oh, well, that seemed to be something of an overreaction. Wait a minute. Did you mean my face? Yes. What did you think I said? Oh, I thought you were attacking my beliefs, my faith. No, just your faithful features, you ugly swine. Oh, well, that's all right then. Okay, Ryan, so I want to know about faith. What are these spirits and creatures or beings all about? All right, so let's start with faith in Kamchatka during the earliest part of our time period. That is specifically between 1450 and the arrival of the Russians in 1697. So during this period, the Kamchatka Peninsula is home to a small number of indigenous peoples. There were the Ittlemans, the Koryaks, the Chukchis, the Aluti. It does sound a little bit like you're talking about the neighbourhood. Oh, the Chukchis have been calling again. They want us to go to dinner on Thursday. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's the Aluti again. Ah, they're they're up to their funny business. There's the Aini, the Avons and the Kamchadals. Now, these were all semi-nomadic people, spending their days kind of fishing and hunting and reindeer herding, crafting wood, processing metal, making clothes, making beads, all the things you might expect from some indigenous community out in the remote wilderness. Now, they each had their own culture, their own languages, their own traditions, but also their own religions. And often these religions were based on animism and shamanism. Now, this is where faith is tied more to nature and the spirits. So, the Ittlemans, for example, were a tribe of around about 20,000 people in the central western parts of the peninsula. They were said to be the original settlers to Kamchatka. Their name Ittleman means living here, and they indeed have been living there for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure when the Russians arrived, they had a different debate, but but we're literally called living here. (laughs) No, 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 it's fine. Now, the Ittlemans, they lived in underground homes called Yorangas along the coast and down riverways where they spent most of their time catching salmon. And as you might expect from that lifestyle, a complex belief system developed which involved the spirits of animals and a lot of emphasis was placed on appeasing the spirit realm with shamans playing a key role as the link between the people and the spirits and one of the ways the shamans were able to do this was taking a steam bath with them conducting rituals in baths built over these geothermal vents the steam being thought to sort of attract the spirit and bring together this powerful energy from the underworld just happens to be a lovely relaxing place for the shaman to hang out yeah I see (laughs) (laughs) oh no I've got to live here in the sauna you guys enjoy the cold bit of the village (laughs) it's spirits or something (laughs) do you want the bears to attack or not (laughs) 
Yeah, so the shamans told children about their central creator as a being called Kupka, uh, which protected their people against a terrible tribe of giants known as the Ivail, who lived in the mountains and were said to be hairy, dim-witted brutes who could freeze people just by looking at them. I have met some of them, I believe. <laughs> I think I am one of them. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's the Ainu. They lived along the southern coast and they were skilled hunters and traders. They lived in small villages, not underground, but within traditional houses or more with thatched roofs. And they were a people who arrived originally from northern Japan. They were said to have an extraordinary language. They were notable, though, Pete, for being especially hairy. Ah, yes. So in Japan, they are known as the Ainu from the island of Hokkaido, I believe. They were known to the Russians, though, when they arrived as the Shaggies. (laughs) (laughs) And the Scoobies, were they another tribe? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I digress. Unlike the Ittleman, the Ainu followed an animistic religion. They centred around the worship of bears and they considered them sacred ancestors, conduits to the gods. And uh, one of the more notable rituals that I found involved capturing a bear cub, feeding the bear cub, offering prayers to the bear cub, and then ceremonially killing the bear cub and feasting on its flesh. That's how I like to show respect, Ryan, and I respect you greatly, just saying. Yeah. Well, just don't do what they do, which is to enshrine the skull as a means of returning the bear's spirit to the mountain. I don't want to be enshrined. (laughs) You'll do what you're told, (laughs) skullhead. And then there's the Koryaks. Now, these were a people that occupied the northern peninsula. Now, they are known as the Koryaks, but they called themselves the Shavchuvans, the deer people. And as you might guess, they moved around the land with herds of... I'm going to guess deer. Correct. Yes, Yes. deer. Yeah. Now, like the Ittleman tribe, they also had a shamanistic religion, but their supreme being was a raven called Tuxami. I love a raven. I'm a. I'm very pro raven. I'm with these guys. Yeah. Now they celebrated Tixami in poems and songs passed on orally, generation by generation, and they often recited them while wearing masks that were said to be vessels for the raven's spirit. Now, the Koryaks even constructed this special hut, which was dedicated to worshipping the raven. Inside the sacred hut, they built an incredible 20-foot idol of him out of wood and iron with these crystal lenses for eyes that looked up towards the heavens, and it had wings which could be operated with strings to mimic the motion of flight. Is this the Raveny Wizard of Oz? <laughs> the great and powerful Raven. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> Now, inside the hut, the shamans performed rituals to encourage Tixami to fly off and consult with other spirits before reporting back with any omens and prophecies that it might have found. And uh, to encourage the raven to come back a little quicker, they'd give it offerings of berries and furs and that sort of stuff. Now, in other rituals, the shamans would use drumming to descend into a trance. Uh, They believed that that was a pathway to the underworld where they could communicate with ancestors and sort of ask for wisdom and prophecy themselves. In fact, consulting with the departed was a big deal, Pete, because Koryak shamans also believed that after death, your soul could be recalled from the underworld to reanimate your corpse. <laughs> You're back to the living dead, aren't you? You can't, you can't help yourself. <laughs> can't get away from zombies. Now, they also talked about an evil shape-shifting demon, which they called Keramet, who could take animal or human form and whom parents warned children would snatch them away if they misbehaved. Oh. Oh, the old classic. 
Caramet, blooming Caramet again. <laughs> I told you, if you don't behave. <laughs> exactly. Now, the Koryak also told of a race of tiny people. They were about the size of a finger, and they lived in the roots of trees. They emerged only at night, where they would shoot little small bows and small little poisonous arrows, and sometimes leave tiny clay pots or small stone tools lying around behind them. I love that! Isn't that the cutest thing ever? It's basically the borrowers, only in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how about that? Little fairy pixie kind of world. Feral smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Faith was very much a part of life in Kamchatka Peninsula in the early days of our time period. But let's see how that played out in the days of the Russian occupation, when men of faith arrived armed with a big book of beliefs. Ooh. When do you want to find out about that? I want to find out probably after this. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. That's not it. Go again. Stop! Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Do you want to bring down doom upon the village? Oh no, I definitely don't. So, were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I guess I'm Russian? Go again! No, no, no! Not quite my tempo. Again! Stop! Either you're deliberately out of time and sabotaging my religion, or you don't know you're out of time, and that's even worse. I just thought it might be fun to play drums for the village. Then play right! There we go. You're getting closer. That's it. Now you're playing like you mean it. Harness the power of the volcanoes. Keep it up! Stop! Now that's how you drum in Kamchatka. Ryan, you've promised me a bunch of men with big books. Bring on the big books. Yeah, so in the year 330, you might notice that's a bit out of our time period. You've leapt backwards somewhat. I can't help but notice. <laughs> this requires a little bit of backstory, all right, <laughs> to set the scene. <laughs> so, yes, in the year 330, the Roman emperor, Constantine the Great, he dedicates the city of Byzantium, in modern-day Istanbul, as the new capital of the Roman Empire. Now, initially, this Eastern Roman Empire preserved much of the traditional Roman culture. But when the Roman Empire collapsed, influences from Greek language and Eastern cultures started to take over. And piece by piece, the Byzantine Empire increasingly became kind of its own thing. And with the church making Eastern Orthodox Christianity their dominant religion, and a government which was turned into a monarchy with an emperor in charge, crowned as God's representative on earth, so this new empire's power grew. And so much so that the Byzantine emperor found himself under quite a lot of pressure from foreign challengers. People like the Persians, the Arabs, the Turks and the Crusaders. Now, facing threats on this scale was a problem because the Byzantine Empire wasn't yet able to protect itself alone. And as such, they sought out alliances with friendly neighbours to help bolster their defences. Yeah, yeah, I'm always asking my friends to help fend off an unruly mob. <laughs> you never ask me. You've got such a busy social calendar, I, I can always assume that you're not ready to help moat clearance or any of the other tricky tasks. Fine. <laughs> Now, one potential ally, though, was a rising power in the East, consisting of multiple groups of Slavic and Finnic peoples who had united in a federation known as the... 
Russian Empire of Russia? <laughs> the Kievan Rus. Oh, Kievan Rus, of course. The Kievan Rus, yes. Now, seeing that the Kievan Rus might be able to provide a buffer against some of their more significant enemies, Byzantine brothers and co-emperors Basil II and Constantine VIII decided to reach out to Kievan Rus leader Vladimir Zviatoslavich. How many times did you practice that name? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as Prince Vladimir the Great of Kiev. Now, the emperors, they proposed a mutually beneficial arrangement, a deal whereby the Kievan Rus would provide military assistance to the Byzantine Empire, and the empire would give the Kievan Rus access to some lucrative trade routes that they had in the south. So Vladimir agrees to this, and to ratify the deal, all he's asked to do is marry Basil and Constantine's sister and agree to be baptised as an Orthodox Christian. Oh, there's always a catch, isn't there? (laughs) Get a wife and be religious. Marrying a sister, I don't mind. She might be nice, you don't know. Probably very lovely. So Vladimir agrees to the terms, and thus, in the year 988, the ruler of the Kievan Rus is baptised and subsequently marries Anna, the emperor's sister. Diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Vladimir returns home with his new wife and a Christian cross round his neck. And from then on, Eastern Orthodoxy becomes the faith of the Kievan Rus. It always amazes me when these things happen that, you know, your king comes back and goes, oh, we worship this guy now. And then everyone just does. And you think, surely there's some of you going, well, hang on, this was the foundation of our life. And we've just (laughs) shifted it over there. (laughs) Now, I'm no leader, but those are the people that you just kill off, right? Yeah, I would say so. You just kill those people off and everyone else is like, oh, it's super fashionable now. Look how cool I am. I've got a cross around my neck. This is why true believers are so dangerous. Anyway, over time, as the Kievan Rus now start becoming the emerging state of Russia, variations start appearing in their religious faith, with the Russian church now creating their own distinct religious identity that combined Christian beliefs, but also had some of their previously held traditional faiths too. And when the Byzantine Empire eventually fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, the newly emerging Russian Empire saw itself as the rightful successor to both the Roman and the Byzantine Empires. I like to think they really mingled them in alarming ways, such as the Virgin Mary was actually a bear. Well, hold that thought. (laughs) (laughs) So the Russian Tsar, now in charge of the Russian Empire, he names himself the supreme ruler of the Orthodox Christian world. And by 1589, the Russian Orthodox Church gains total independence and becomes a distinctly Russian institution. Russia, now considering themselves the next great empire, they develop an appetite for expansion, with new territories and new peoples being needed to increase their power and control. But not wanting to appear like a warmongering land-grabbing people, the Russians commission expeditions under the guise of spreading Christianity to heathen peoples. It's what God would have wanted, I think we can all agree. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. And so, with religion and politics being intertwined like this, priests and monks are now tasked with heading out into the wildlands to find and convert as many indigenous people as they could. And it worked. Because as the missionaries pushed east and south, Russia's territory starts to expand, with uncivilised parts of the world being brought within the grip of the Russian Empire, all under one faith, Russian Orthodoxy. Which is a whole lot of backstory, Pete, to bring us to Ivan Bereznoy. Ivan Bereznoy, the famous Ivan Bereznoy. Born in 1701, Bereznoy undertook religious education at the Russian Orthodox Theological Academy in Moscow. 
His training covers theology, church doctrine, as well as other things like literacy and languages. And guess what, Pete? He excels in all of them. In fact, after his education, the Holy Synod, which is the governing body of the Russian Orthodox Church, they recognise him as being the perfect candidate for missionary work. And so, in 1728, Bereznoy is given the task of travelling to Kamchatka to convert the local tribes. The journey starts overland on horseback, but as he heads east, the roads run out. So he has to move to travelling by boat through the network of rivers across the Russian landscape until he eventually reaches the eastern seaboard. Now, from the eastern coast, he boards a small ship which sets off through the Pacific Ocean and it arrives in the Kamchatka Peninsula after a journey that takes almost an entire year. Yeah, travel was different in those days, wasn't it? You don't go, oh, I've got a layover for three hours. This is really inconvenient. (laughs) Now, Bereznoy, though, has reached Kamchatka, but he's now alone. He's isolated and he's largely self-sufficient. He has to sort of forage for food, he has to defend himself from the elements and, indeed, the wildlife. But eventually his long journey pays off because one day he finds himself face-to-face with people from the Ittleman tribe. The Ittlemans from number four down the road. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, Brezne and the Ittleman sort of just stare at each other as <laughs> each other talk this unintelligible language. And so this kind of makes communicating even basic information impossible, right? Let alone trying to explain and comprehend complex yes. Christian theology. Yes, <laughs> yes. Let me, let's not start with the Holy Trinity and three become one. And yeah, let's skip over that. <laughs> Food, shelter. <laughs> but Bresno is persistent and he starts to familiarise himself with the language. But presenting Christian concepts to a people who have vastly different worldviews and belief systems is a much more tricky prospect. And so Bereznoy has to get creative and he has to try and make orthodoxy seem less foreign to these people. So what does he do? He replaces characters from the Bible with imagery they better understand. So replacing people with bears, eagles and spirits, (laughs) exactly as you said. Nice. I could be a missionary. (laughs) So he replaced Christian names like Adam, Eve and Noah into local equivalents. Ajishma, Ivanga and Nachek. And since Salmon held such a huge spiritual meaning to the Ittleman, he explained Christ's sacrifice and resurrection by replacing Jesus with a Salmon. Ah, well, that makes sense. Being ripped apart by a bear. (laughs) Makes as much sense, maybe. So he explains a whole bunch of tricky concepts like the Holy Trinity, you, you said there. He, com- he compared them to the earth, the ocean and the sky. Inspired by their tradition of repetitive chanting, he taught them his own chants, in quotes, which just so happened to be Christian psalms and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a chant. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to love this next one. <laughs> Uh, He incorporated some of the Christian practices into the local rituals as well. So coming of age, marriage and death rituals were now sort of sprinkled with prayers and a few signs of the cross. Uh, He moved the dates of Christian festivals to just align with their local celebrations. What? It's Christmas here too? No way! (laughs) It's amazing! (laughs) What a coincidence! And in an effort to get people sort of more on side and make conversion seem more enticing, he held back on criticising some of their more beloved customs. So things like, you know, making offerings to the spirits and of course polygamy, which unsurprisingly the local tribal chiefs didn't want to see changed. Yeah, no, we like this part. <laughs> we can leave the raising a bear cub and slaughtering it, but I'd really like to have seven wives still. <laughs> yeah. And so, despite all the difficulties that he faced, Bresnoy started to make progress. 
Not all of the tribes liked what he was peddling, but many spiritual leaders were won over. Some just adopted a few of the rituals, uh, others embraced Christianity completely. They shifted their faith over to Christianity entirely, and in some cases became Russian Orthodox priests themselves, and agreed to help Bereznoy spread the word of Christ to get some of the more stubborn tribesfolk on board. Ah, spread the word of Christ the salmon. And so, in a matter of a few years, Bereznoy successfully manages to bridge the cultural divide, and he converts much of the Ittleman faith systems to Russian Orthodoxy. Now, we don't know how long Bereznoy stayed in Kamchatka, but it was most likely a decade or two, certainly long enough to establish a permanent presence there. He built churches, and uh, he translated the Bible into the Ittleman language. But we do know that at some point, he was also joined by other missionaries from Moscow, priests like Johan Lutzin, who took up the mantle for continuing Bresnoy's work, converting more tribal groups, leading efforts to build even more churches and more chapels, writing several books about the Ittleman people, which it is said a critical work that has helped to preserve their language. But looking back on it now, though, it's easy to say that the uh, missionary work in the Kamchatka Peninsula was a success for the Russian Orthodox Church. It led to the establishment of a lasting Christian presence. But in terms of the ethics of imposing a culture and religion on another group of people, it's kind of worth considering and reflecting on the damage that you know this success had on basically erasing a culture. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? If, I guess if they embrace it on their own terms, that's fine. But if you force it on them, that's not so much. I'm more interested in the second guy who arrived, who meets Bresnoy and goes, well, I'll come to your first meeting. And he sits down and uh, Bresnoy goes, so Jesus swam upstream to the spawning grounds. <laughs> He's going, what? <laughs> Whilst wearing a mask and doing chanting. <laughs> With eight wives. And on Christmas, which is 25th... Is it, what? This isn't anything like what I know. <laughs> Shut up. Hudson. I'll explain later. <laughs> All right. Do you want another final story? I do want a final story. And this one, I demand, is a cracker. Oh, it's a cracker. <laughs> okay. This next story is a grisly story. And it's uh, about the controversial faith that grabbed Kamchatka by the balls. And we're going to hear about that after this. Welcome, everybody, to the 2023 Jesus Christ Convention. It's great to see so many Jesuses with us here today. Peace be with you. And, and also, also with you. you. All right, I'll start with a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you've come armed, can I ask that you leave your weapons in the cloakroom? Yes, I'm looking at you, Republican Jesus. No guns in the main hall. And Viking Jesus, swords and axes do also count as weapons, I'm afraid. Thank you. Now, a small request. I'm sorry to report there's no room for baby Jesus this year, so if any of you can offer up space in your crib, that would be lovely. <laughs> and it's lovely to see someone who has swum all the way upstream from Kamchatka just to be here today, his second coming to the conference. It's Spawn Again Jesus. <laughs> now, talking of fish, a buffet lunch is going to be provided. Now, it doesn't look like much, but loaves and fishes Jesus will make sure there's enough for everybody. I sure will. And if you could avoid nibbling on the Lamb of God this year, please, he is an attendee at the conference, not a side dish. And Catholic Christ, please don't run around telling people to eat your body. It's a little bit weird. Oh, right. Also, if you're thirsty, there are plenty of jugs of water available. But if you could resist the urge and not get too drunk, that would be great. We have a full day today and I don't want another incident like the last supper we had. Oh. Now let's get started with the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, Daddy, Daddy be his, his name. name. Ma. 
Once again, Ryan, a lot of big talk. I want to know what has gone on in this next story. Well, historical records are scarce and often contradictory, but we do know that Kondrati Ivanovich Selivanov was born to a family of peasants in the village of Ternovo in Russia sometime in the early 1700s. Now, Selivanov was raised within the Orthodox Christian Church, and he was initially a devout follower. But sometime in his 20s, he became kind of disillusioned with the church's teachings. And one day he has this religious experience that convinces him that he is a prophet. Oh, well, I have those Saturday nights usually. I think I might be a prophet. (laughs) (laughs) And he started to preach his own new doctrine, a faith which emphasised the importance of spiritual purification. Now, what does that mean, Pete? Well, there's many variants. So you could be beating yourself with a birch stick or you could be standing naked under a waterfall or you could be abstaining from all the good things in life. Abstaining. No alcohol, no sex. We're done with that now. Uh, in this like new... to withdraw from this religion immediately. <laughs> <laughs> also, on top of the no alcohol and no sex, is self-mutilation. That escalated quickly, I think it's it fair to say. So specifically, Selivanov believed that after being castrated, men and women would be freed from sin and temptation. Their bodies then capable of becoming vessels to house angels, bringing the host closer to perfection and ultimately to God. God. Now, how did he come to this conclusion? (laughs) Apparently, it was his interpretation of several different Bible verses about castration, which he read as the Bible telling him it was necessary to do it for spiritual purification. In essence, he thought that original sin came into the world by Adam and Eve having sex, and that after getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they had the forbidden fruit grafted onto their bodies as testicles and breasts. Now, he thought that by removing these organs, it would then restore us to the pristine, pre-forbidden fruit state that God had first intended. You follow him? I'm following. I'm very uncomfortable. (laughs) So Selivanov then preached that Jesus Christ himself had been a castrate, and so had the apostles, and indeed all the early saints. He called his faith Skotzi, meaning castrated in Russian, and somewhat remarkably slowly started to build up a small but loyal following, people whom he called the White Doves. I'd just like to point out, you lost me at abstaining from booze. (laughs) You didn't even have to get to this part before I dropped out. So where do these people come from? It's a mystery. It is a mystery. It really is. Yeah. But as the years passed, the number of white doves got so large that a whole community grew around him. And the Scotsy sect now occupied an entire village. And all of these followers, men and women, had agreed to be castrated. It's very much a single generation village though isn't it (laughs) yeah you've got to always be looking for new people right yeah so to be specific on the castration they had to opt to participate in one of two different kinds of castration for men the first option was lesser seal which meant the removal of just the testicles the second option for men was the greater seal, and this involved the removal of both the penis and the testicles. It's just turned into a Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently those men that underwent the greater seal, they had to use a cow horn when urinating. It's a fun fact I found. <laughs> Oh my lord. So the white dove women, the first option is the lesser seal, and that meant removing or scarring the nipples or the breasts. And the greater seal, the second option, meant removing the breasts and the labia and also the clitoris. 
Now, originally, this was all done using a red-hot iron. I said I was uncomfortable before. It is amplifying significantly. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Selivanov referred to this as the fiery baptism. Well, yes. <laughs> but eventually, Pete, you'll be pleased to know that he moved on to using knives and razors. It's less comforting than you might think. <laughs> yeah, and you just use the red-hot iron to stem the bleeding instead. Yeah. Now, obviously, they didn't use anaesthetics, and of course, alcohol's prohibited. <laughs> oh, good lord. I've, you can't see this. Well, you can see this, but I'm now folded up as small as a human being can fold. My arms are crossed. My legs are crossed. My hands are clenched. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, this didn't go great for Selivanov. His rise in popularity actually caught the attention of the authorities, who were horrified by what he was doing. So he and his followers were arrested as heretics, and they were exiled to darkest Siberia. But that wasn't Ooh. the end of Selivanov, because despite his exile and teachings being banned, this just kind of resulted in him being a master. His followers then continued the faith underground with these networks of safe houses where they could continue to conduct castration rituals, you know, away from the prying eyes of those pesky Russian authorities. I thought Fight Club was subversive. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, at its peak, it's estimated that the Skopsi sect had over 100,000 followers. That is mind-blowing, because I am not seeing much upside to this at the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, look, most of those people were recruited from fringe Christian groups and indigenous peoples in remote locations. Any idea where this is going? <laughs> I think I have a rough idea, but carry on. <laughs> yeah, and that's where we find skepticism arriving in the Kamchatka Peninsula, right at the very end of our time period, around 1750. They arrived promising spiritual enlightenment to all the small communities on the peninsula, even the Russian Orthodox Christians and the indigenous peoples. But this didn't go down very well. Locals started complaining about the corpses that were being left to rot in the wilderness, you know, the bodies of those who had died during botched castrations. And thankfully, like the bodies that they left behind, the Skopsi sect eventually just became like a discarded corpse. And the faith now is a faint memory, all the remnants scattered to the winds. That it had any popularity at all is mind-boggling on its own. It's quite astonishing. How do you sell that into people? You go, well, if you see page three of the brochure, I think you're really going to like what you see. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there you go. That is faith in the Kamchatka Peninsula during 1450 to 1750. All in all, an excellent job and an area that I knew absolutely nothing about other than it is a card on the risk board, which was my one point of reference for Kamchatka. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed researching this episode and as I said at the beginning it is a place that I'd really like to go to and I really do genuinely recommend that people go and take a look at some photos of this place it's extraordinary well we'll probably post some or as we said at the beginning if you want to give us your email address we will send you an email with some pictures of Kamchatka in it <laughs> we will do that you will <laughs> Hi there, come in. Sorry, I'm, I'm a bit nervous. It's my first time being castrated. Yeah, no worries. Completely normal to be nervous. What are you thinking of getting done today? I was thinking of getting the lesser seal. What do you think? The lesser seal? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always worth to go for the greater seal, in my opinion. You know, I mean, you're here now, so why not? I guess, I, I don't know, I, I was thinking I might just try it out a bit first. Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't want to look back and regret the decision. Well, of course not. I'm not the you-only-live-once type of person, you know? Sure. And if I have to pay more for the greater seal later, well, so be it. At least I know I took time to decide. Well, look, before we get started, did you have any other questions? Well, yes. How long do you think it will take? About an hour? An hour, really? Yeah, but it will feel much longer than that. Right.
right, and what if I mess it up by moving around or something? <laughs> Look, just try to relax and stay still. And if you need a break at any point, just scream. Okay, right. Well, let's do it then, shall we? Okay. If you'd like to lay back and whip it out. Oh, right. Uh, well, actually, this is probably going to take about two hours. Hey! <laughs> Okay, Ryan, I thoroughly enjoyed that, but it is time to look to the future. The next episode, my episode, so let's pull out the Dursalator. Okay, here it is. Oh, I love that sound. Okay, here we go. Your place is... Wales. Wales! Oh, that sounds great. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, and your time is... Oh. 1920 to 1930. Oh, nice. Nice. I like that. That sounds promising too. This is too good. I need something terrible to trip you up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, ready? And your topic is... Oh, come on! Coal. Coal (laughs) in Wales during 1920 to 30. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I get Kamchatka Peninsula. You get coal in Wales. For our international listeners, you probably don't know that Wales is famous for having coal and coal mines and just generally being coal ridden, which I can only assume was it was specifically also- during the twenties and thirties, I reckon. <laughs> That's when the coal mines were most active. This is ridiculous. I think that the Dursleiter has just been kind to me today and we need to accept that. Why don't you just do hot dogs in New York? I'd be done with it. <laughs> That is a bit of a jammy roll, I'll give you that, but I will take it with both hands. I'm I'm excited to hear. It's better be good, though. This is so unfair. <laughs> it's no faith in Kamchatka, is it? Well, I will take it and I will bring you something fascinating, Ryan. You have my word. I can't wait to hear it. Good luck. Okay, so that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us through the website, which is hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or X, formerly known as Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content, facts we didn't use, photos from the show, and other bits and bobs. Or as we said at the start of the show, you can also send us an email with a subject line newsletter. Send that to Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com and we'll put you on our list and we'll send out all of the things we do on social media in a single email directly to your door. How convenient. How very convenient. And of course, we'll be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. An excellent episode. And thanks to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. What are you watching? Documentary on ancient aliens. Right, sure, a documentary. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's hardly going to be packed with facts if it's about aliens. But aliens exist. They do not exist. They do. No, they don't. Well, I believe they're out there. This documentary says so. Oh, right, so some idiot on a documentary says aliens exist and you just believe them, do they? Yeah. Then you, Ryan, are a moron because there is no hard evidence for aliens at all. All the top scientists in the world agree aliens aren't real. And what makes you think those scientists are correct? Well, 
world because they've written books and stuff which are full of proof that aliens don't exist. And you've read these books? Have I read them? Yeah. Well, not exactly. So you get your information from books you haven't read, written by people you've never met, and you take their words as truth? Well, yeah, but that sounds an awful lot like... Don't say it. A leap of faith. All right, fine. Point made. See? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Wait, Ryan, that documentary you're watching. Yeah? It's Star Wars. You're watching Star Wars. I know. Ancient aliens. It's history, isn't it? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Oh, Ryan, you are an idiot. You better believe it.